2 Corinthians 2.12. We're going to read down through verse 17. After the service this morning, we're going to offer the Lord's Supper, and baptized believers are encouraged to take the Lord's Supper this morning. It'll be served just after the sermon, so prepare your hearts for that. 2 Corinthians 2.12-17. To the thanks of God, we're going to see the mission of God. We're going to see how the mission of God wants to be worked out by God through us, despite our unmet desires, verses 12 and 13, despite a lack of, of responses, verses 14 to 16, and despite our overall insufficiency, verse 17. Listen to the word of the Lord. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. First, God wants to work his missions through us, despite our unmet desires, even in spite of desires that remain unmet. We included a, a map of the geography of Corinthians for you with your bulletin this morning. I'd like to draw your attention to that map. And this is meant to be used as a resource along with your scriptural journal on 2 Corinthians or your personal Bible. It's meant to be used as a resource to help you through this geographically laden book. If you look at the side that has figures 1, 2, and 2, we're going to call the top one 2A and the bottom one 2B. And then later to four and five are on the back. I want to say a few things about it. Uh, look at 2B. So it's going to be uh, kind of on the bottom. It's the most visible map. If you were to look there, you can see the town of Corinth, kind of on the left. You can see the region of Achaia is in all bold caps right underneath it. If you look over to the right side of the map, you see another region, Asia. In the first century A.D., the region of Asia, all bold, all caps. If you look in the top left-hand corner of that map, you see Macedonia, all caps. Not pictured in the map, but far to the south and the east across the Mediterranean is Jerusalem and Judea. And we see that on a different map in a moment. Troas, you can see Troas, is kind of up and to the left from Asia as a region. You could circle that city. It's a city like Corinth is a city. And I've already mentioned the region of Macedonia. And those regions or cities are mentioned, just to kind of give you a, a reference point in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8, 116, 116, 123, 212. Those towns are mentioned in those verses, not every town and every verse, but they're mentioned through those verses. So something is going on with the geography of this region, and we want you to have it 
in a backdrop of your thinking as we work through uh, 2 Corinthians. Figure 2a, which is up on the page, figure 2a shows the whole third journey, save the back and forth across the Aegean Sea. It shows the whole third journey and the spiritually and emotionally uh, roller coaster that the leaders went through in trying to help stabilize that church. There was a, a quick visit across that is not in figure, in figure 1, but it is in figure 2a. So look at Paul's travel plans. The scriptures, if we try to piece it back together, and I'm borrowing this map from David Garland in the New American Commentary, his plan A is he would go from Ephesus to Macedonia down to Corinth and then to Jerusalem. Well, that fell through. There were problems in the church, caused it to fall through. His plan B was that he would go to Corinth and then back to Macedonia, then back to Corinth and then to Judea. And it seems that his actual travel wound up being that he had to go for an emergency visit, come back, went to Macedonia. He had written prior to this three letters. This now his fourth letter comes to us as 2 Corinthians. And he is getting a good report from Titus, that Titus is having a better response from them with regard to repentance in the ways of the Lord than he had during his, his brief and tumultuous visit prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians, we believe his fourth letter to the church at Corinth. There's reasons for mentioning this, but you're going to have to hang on for 10 minutes to catch it. So just kind of try to hang on. I know this is a lot of geography, but there's reasons for mentioning this. It's mainly because the text is heavy laden, but there's some other practical reasons for mentioning all this. So we have plan A, plan B, and actual travel. And that's a reconstruction that one, one commentator made regarding the data in 2 Corinthians, all the material there. If you look at figure one, it's just blown out a little bit more, but it's still in the first century AD. And if you were to look carefully and follow the lines, you could follow Paul's third missionary journey, uh, where he wrote from to the Corinthians. You could find information about different stops on his way, and Judea and Jerusalem is actually pictured on the south and east side of the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, Paul sealed his fate there uh, when he appealed to Caesar. If you look at the back side of this map, and again, this is just a little resource for you to leave in your Bible, figure five shows a modern map of the Mediterranean. So you can see there, still pictured kind of right in the middle, the Aegean Sea with Greece. You don't see Corinth, but you see Athens. Right, they're kind of in the middle, and you see Turkey just a little bit to the right of that. You can see in all caps letters, if you look hard enough right in that area by the Aegean Sea, you can see Macedonia, and you can certainly see Jerusalem. And so I hope that gives, gives you an idea. Just These are real places that the Apostle Paul walked, Titus and Timothy walked. These are real places for this missionary journey that, that they went to before the days of planes, trains, and automobiles. And these are real concerns to go see this people. The Apostle Paul had indeed, a unique mission. But there are ways in which, though we're not first century apostles, there are ways in which we share the mission's heart of Paul. And I want to talk about that this morning. We share that heart because God's accomplishing his missions despite our unmet desires and lack of responses and our overall insufficiency. Finally, with the map, if you look at the top, we've copied forward here, figure four is a timeline of the Apostle Paul's life. And so you can kind of see when Jesus resurrected and ascended. You can see when he started his missionary journeys and when the Corinthian church was founded. And you can see when Paul was martyred in the A.D. 60s as well. He wrote First and Second Corinthians between A.D. 53 and 56. He was martyred in Rome about 10 years later. Uh, if you if you follow that map there, you can see that and, and a little bit more information as well. Now, I'm just going to ask you to take that map 
and kind of fold it up and put it in whatever Bible resource that you use for future reference. I hope that it helps you in your in service to your studying this on your own, as well as during the expositions on Sunday morning as we're working through 2 Corinthians. Let's look at our text for today now in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And I'm now in verse 13. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. So you see the geography, and hopefully now you can kind of think Mediterranean Sea, Aegean Sea, Macedonia. This, you can kind of see it in your mind now off that map, or at least you can reference back down and, and see it. Nothing you couldn't have done on your own. I'm just going to try, I'm trying to kind of create a common understanding of biblical places there during this sermon. I'm not going to continue to do this in each sermon. So you, you're kind of in this early on in this series, and hopefully that helps you. So when you see him talking about Troas, he's talking about a place where he felt there was an open door for the sharing of the gospel. And his spirit was not at rest because he didn't find his brother Titus there. Obviously, that's not a reason without context to not stay in that place and preach the gospel. He went to Macedonia because he was so burdened about the problems at the church that he had planted in Corinth. And he wanted to hear the good news from Titus. And I don't want to say that he wanted it more than he wanted to do a new missions expedition in Troas. I just want to say that those were both competing absolute realities for the Apostle Paul. Both of them were and important absolute realities. Preach the gospel, it says here in this passage. Preach the gospel of Christ. That's what he did. It's what he wanted to do. It was always his heartbeat to do more and more and more. We had uh, two funeral services this week from members of the church, as has already been mentioned here. And the services were well attended. I had an 87 and a 94-year-old that's Met the Lord, Ms. Una Kuhn and Ms. June Russell. And, and one of the sons mentioned to me that the service, he was so thankful that the gospel was preached clearly so that people could hear it. He appreciated the gospel being preached. And I, I looked at that dear brother and I said to him, I said, I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to say. He he wanted to compliment that the gospel was clearly preached, but I just said to him, I, I have, I can tell you, I don't know what else to say. I, I only have one message. We mention it freshly every time we gather, and we apply it in different ways of our lives, but it's the gospel. That's it. There's no redactions. There's no updated version of it. It's just the gospel of Christ crucified, buried, dead, and resurrected for your sins. That's the gospel. Let not the simplicity of that aspect of this point be lost on you. We preach Christ crucified. We proclaim it. We mention membership matters course. In that course, we share the gospel and for prospective members, we insist that you know the gospel and you have received the gospel, that you can share the gospel, because it is the main thing. We strive to act consistent, though we fail. We try to act consistent with the gospel, 
as members of the church. It's not just for the entry point of the Christian life. The gospel is for the entirety of the Christian life. What to make of this open door here? This open door. Surely, the apostle is articulating a certain amount of unmet desire. He wanted to take on more of that mission, and yet his deep concern for the church at Corinth constrained him. I think we can make a a few things out of it. Let me share what Dr. Richard Pratt says about it. He said, an open door does not mean an open opportunity. Rather, the metaphor indicates that God blessed the legitimate efforts of his people with remarkable success. An open door does not mean an open opportunity. What Dr. Pratt thinks about this text is that an open door to preach the gospel there is not exactly the same thing as an open opportunity as we use it in modern parlance. Another commentator said this to me about this passage and thought it was helpful. An open door does not automatically mean that you should walk through it. Sometimes we're in life, we're looking for open doors. And an open door, I mean, you can have an open door that comes from the enemy, right? You can have an open door that comes from the Lord. We have to discern if that door should be walked through. Because, differently, because a path seems easy to walk down does not mean that that is the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Certainly, there are times, though, where we sense the gospel is, people are more receptive to the gospel. Certain, certain peoples in certain places are more receptive to the gospel. And I think that's what's being articulated here. I believe the apostle Paul's articulated, even though... There was a receptivity to the gospel there. I was not at rest because of my unrest about the church at Corinth. He said his brother Titus was there. So the importance of a fraternal spiritual support is articulated to help through the difficult times. Titus would later be tasked with establishing elders in the churches in Crete. And Titus was exhorted to add those elders Later in the pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 talks about it. In no small part, then, that there would be an extension of this fraternal support for one another and for all members because there are these times when our desires are clearly unmet, and that is difficult, and we need help to get through those times. The Bible urges us not to neglect the meeting of one another together so that we can encourage one another in spiritual things, Hebrews 10.25 says. So don't deny yourself the ordinary means of fraternal gatherings, of gatherings of brothers and sisters in Christ, that ordinary means of grace. And don't deny yourself the extension of the fraternity that the Apostle Paul and the Apostolic Associates had, that the elders in any given church have, that all the members of a church have, of being supported and edified in the Word of God. Don't deny yourself the Lord's Supper either, O baptized believer. Table Talk Magazine. This month, September, I have some extra copies out there if you want one. It has an article in the front by a brother, Keith Matheson. And here's what he writes. With the Lord's Supper, in addition to the tried and true strategies we have used in the past, it's an article about how Satan subverts the ordinances. This is in addition with the tried and true strategies that have been tried in the past, like transubstantiation and the sacrifice of the Mass and so on. Focus on other initiatives as well should be noted. And he says this. Look for opportunities. He's kind of using a C.S. Lewis screw tape letters type approach here in his writing. Look for opportunities to deceive. For example, 
convince his followers that unless they are perfectly sinless, they are not qualified to participate in the Lord's Supper. There's nothing better than convincing the starving that they are not qualified to eat. Go on to convince them to neglect thinking about the supper until the last second so that their hearts are focused on anything but the enemy. If we do these things consistently, we can continue to sow division and discord within the enemy's camp. Matheson's article, page 11, table talk for this month. Take the Lord's Supper. Take the Lord's Supper. Don't do it defiantly. Don't do it as an unbeliever. But humble yourself and take the Lord's Supper and seek to make right wrongs after you walk out the door. The Scripture urges us to get, when we gather together, urges us toward the Supper. Take the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer, consider these words. The passage this morning that is our focus passage says the Apostle Paul's spirit was not at rest. God used people like Titus to encourage the Apostle Paul, and he uses one another's here in this, in, in this church to encourage one another when our spirit is not at rest. God guides his people with guidances that line up with his word for the spreading of the gospel or for missions. I believe the healthier a church, the healthier her missions. More missions does not automatically mean better missions. More does not automatically mean better. But missions can be stymied by internal unhealth. Think of the body and think of it in this way. Paul is not in Troas because he's burdened for the established church at Corinth. A healthier the church, the healthier her missions. The healthier her church, the healthier her missions. The healthier we become, the healthier our spreading of the gospel should be. It is commensurate. And so what I want to say in this first point is that God's mission is going forward. In summary, this first point is going forward even though we sometimes have desires for world missions that are not met. God is making healthy his people here, and the more healthy that we become as a body, the more focused on missions, healthy missions, we should be. The sharing of the gospel is what I define as healthy missions. The sharing of the gospel with the lost in the world, especially in unreached people groups, especially with people groups that have previously not had access to the gospel. So this can be our desire, and sometimes we also still have to have a desire for the established local church, both and, uh, not either or. Number two, God wants to work his mission through us, through our efforts, despite a perceived lack of responses. So not just your unmet desires about where you may or may not want to be geographically and where you may or may not want to see the gospel be right now geographically, but also despite a perceived lack of responses. Look at verses 14 through 16 for this point. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. God wants to work his missions through us despite when we perceive a lack of responses. Look at the first phrase in that subset of Scripture. Thanks be to God. We can say thanks be to God, can't we? Thanks be to God for his goodness to us. Thanks be to God even when we don't get to go where we want to go when we want to go there. Thanks be to God even in the midst of emotional, spiritual troubles with a church that Paul loved so very much at Corinth. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. In Christ, 
Thanks be to God. I type on my letters in Christ a lot of times before I put my name. And when you send notes and things out, emails and whatnot, perhaps you could use with the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a way to, to articulate and remind us that we are in Christ, in the family. And that is a phrase that is used right here. But thanks be to God who in Christ always, note that word, always leads us in triumphal procession. You, uh, it's been said that you should almost never use always and never. You should almost never use always and never. And that is mostly good advice. It is mostly good advice. But in this situation, we need to understand Christ is not us. He's different. For example, Christ never sins. Agree? For example, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Agree? We can use never and always with Christ. He is not a convoluted man. He is the ultimate man. He is the reason we are here. That is the purpose of our gatherings, is to lift high the name of Jesus. It's more than a title to a song. It should be our heart song. Christ never sins. Christ always leads. From triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to triumphal procession, He leads us. From first to second coming, we, His church, He leads us. Thanks be to God. This is no health and wealth and prosperity gospel, though. This whole text is is preceded by a text on church discipline and reconciliation. It is a text itself about sacrifice for world missions and concern for the local church. In that, we are commissioned. In fact, we have a great commission. We are commissioned by God to take the gospel to people that have not received it and perhaps have not heard it. We are the Lord's mouthpieces to take that gospel. And in that, he always leads us and he never sins. This is our Lord. Amen? Despite a perceived lack of responses, we preach the gospel. You don't need to be a full-time staff person at a church with the title preacher, the moniker preacher, or the title pastor to preach the gospel. We are proclaimers or preachers of the gospel in our life patterns and in our words. We are to share the gospel. But we don't control the responses. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That does not take into account the responses. Hide it under a bushel, no. I'm going to let it shine. We are not in charge of the responses of people. We control the messaging. What a necessary distinction. It's God that gives the increase. Faithful servant is about the investment, not about the return on the investment. Some astute Bible scholar in the room will, at this point, mind will gravitate to the parable of the talents, right? We often use that, especially when we want to try to get people to do more and, and be more productive and, and whatnot. I, I think it's helpful to think about the parable of the talents, and I'm paraphrasing the parable here at best. We don't have time to go back and read Matthew 25, but it isn't that some get less of a return and some get more. That's not the distinction. The distinction is is that the two and five talented man doesn't bury his talent. You have this great treasure, the pearl of great price, 
Don't hide it under a bushel. Oh, I'm going to let it shine. It's not, it's not about the amount of return on the investment. It's that they invested and did not hide that which was given to them, didn't bury it. For you, O believer, shun not the Spirit in sharing Christ. Share Him. Leave the results to Him. Share Him. The great temptation is for you to be too focused on people's responses and too discouraged when you perceive a lack of responses and not focused enough then, therefore, on the messaging of the gospel itself. This is the historical difference between the first and the second great awakening, between the awakening that occurred in the 1700s and the awakening that occurred in the 1800s. I believe the former historically was focused more on the messaging and the latter was more on the responses. And I believe we would do well to go back to the first great awakening's emphasis rather than to the second. Frankly, I wish we'd have a third great awakening. I wish there would be a great awakening to the gospel in our land. Would you pray with me about that? The message is not the problem. It's our cold, dead hearts. And the way that I read the Bible is only God can warm a man's cold, dead heart because dead is dead and life is life and God makes dead man alive. And he wants to do that, at least in its part, at least in its actualization, through your sharing this gospel message with people. Simple, yes. Commendable, also yes. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. What happens through us is similar to what happened with Paul and Titus and Timothy. World missions is what happens. Verse 14 says, spread the gospel of Christ everywhere. That's what we want. That's what our aim is. We are an extension of this mission. We can do what we do to further the world's missions by sharing the message right where we are. And missions, we can overcomplicate this. It's just spreading the knowledge of God. As He's made Himself known to us, so we make Him known. Who can you tell about Jesus? Tell that person about Jesus. Be a part. It's not even a small part. It's a faithful part of taking that talent which God has given you and, and investing it, working in it by sharing the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are not message makers. We are message takers. You've got to get that through our skulls. The problem it's not we have to be less offensive to people. The problem is we're not taking the message to people. Tell them the gospel. Leave the results to God. He's big enough to handle it. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He can handle it. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is all things. He can handle it. I'm not even directly talking about an appeal for more money. When we think about missions, that's one of the things that we come up with. I'm not even really talking about that. You may need to steward your resources better. I don't know. You may need to try to earn. I don't know. You, you, you may need to um, move to a place where your lower income doesn't matter because you're near the place where you need to share the gospel with people if, if you're called to missions. I don't, I don't know. That's not even what this is really about. I'm just saying, instead of constantly doubting that you, should, you can't share the gospel because you should be in Troas instead of Macedonia because of the sins of the people in Corinth, just share the gospel where you are and leave the results to Jesus. I'm so thankful 
that control is not in the DNA of my calling. Aren't you? We make messes. And God can do more in three minutes than we can do in three years. We just need to follow Him, right? John Piper says it like this. He says, when it comes to world missions, we either go or we send or we disobey. I think that's pretty helpful. He also says something else in his work on missions. He says, missions exists where worship doesn't. The purpose of missions is to see people and to have knowledge of God, to know God enough to worship Him. The whole purpose of missions is that worship would exist. So missions exists where worship doesn't. Pretty good phrase. Turned a pretty good, pretty helpful phrase there. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. I appreciate, this isn't just cerebral, I appreciate the sensory language of verses 14, 15, and 16. Look at it with me afresh. See, it spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Spreads a fragrance. Look at verse 16. To one, a fragrance of death, and to another, a fragrance of life. Verse 15, the aroma of Christ. The aroma. Using the Greek lexicon and different words to convey to us smell. I am thankful that the Lord teaches us by sights and sounds and smells and touches and even taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the Psalter says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. One brief application with this is studying God, the attributes of God. We're offering some ways for you to do that this fall. I hope you take advantage of it. There's information about it in your bulletin. But we need to study God. Knowing God. That is huge. The chief end of man is to glorify God. The first catechism says we must know God. And God has made himself known. He has condescended to make himself known through his word. Study it to know him. And thus to make him known. The messaging needs to be told to all people everywhere. Even though the responses will be split, world missions is met with divided concern over local church shepherding. And the people's responses when the gospel goes forward in power is split. Paul's passion is missions, but his time, his focus is split. I don't find the inward-outward dichotomy between missions or church and missions as really helpful. There are clearly questions of spiritual health and opportunity here, but it's not one or the other. It's both and. Verse 15 states that even among those who are perishing, that the gospel should be preached. It's implied. Even among those who are perishing, there is an effect. There is an aroma. There's a fragrance. This has a function in building up a case against unbelievers for the day of the Lord. They will be without excuse. Listen to me. If you're an unbeliever in this house this morning, I want to tell you, you will have no excuse on the day of the Lord. You will have no excuse on the day of the Lord. You will be condemned to hell, and it will be a justified condemning if you reject this gospel of Jesus Christ. He is a sweet fragrance to those of us who are being saved. We know we've messed up. We know we've fallen short of the glory of God. We know we deserve hell and death forever because of what we've done to God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? If you reject that gift and refuse to call upon the name of the Lord, this preaching is helpful evidence during the jury trial of your salvation on the day of the Lord. You will be justly and roundly condemned to a sinner's hell. And I don't want that for you.
I'm not better than you. My eyes and my heart have been open, and I realize that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Do you? Humble yourself and receive this gospel message. The message, the, the scripture tells us that the response to the message is going to be mixed. Don't, don't let yourself be unduly discouraged by a perceived lack of responses. That can keep you from sharing the message. Share the message. Oh, unbeliever, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Say thanks be to God today, who in Christ always leads his people in triumphal procession. Repent of your sins and believe on him for salvation. This is the gospel, and it has a function for building up the case against unbelievers for the day of the Lord, but it has a ready function right now for bringing the message to you that you need to hear in order to be saved. Humble yourself and reach out to the Lord. Trust Christ. That's us sharing the message. It's not controlling the results. We must not use manipulation tactics to get people to offer tacit responses. We must trust in the plain spoken truth of the gospel. God promises to do his good work. There are those who, quote verse 15, are being saved. There are those who are being saved. That's what verse 15 says. There are those who are being saved, and we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, verse 15 says. Sweet smells like that of winning a war. Knowledge of Christ, the aroma of Christ, life eternal. But to the, to the perishing, it smells like death. It smells like death. Same Christ. Some smell life, some smell death. You don't own their responses. We have this one sacred aim of messaging the gospel everywhere. It is ours, and we will give an account for the stewarding of it. So we need now to trust God with the results and get on about sharing his message. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we have proclaimed among you, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's the first chapter. That's last two Sundays ago. That's that sermon. This is our second point. Gospel's going forward. And it, you don't need to be discouraged unduly by a perceived lack of responses. The first point was don't be discouraged unduly by unmet desires. I think I should be here when I'm really there and the church is unhealthy in Corinth and we come up with all these reasons not to just share the gospel. Share the gospel and leave the results of Christ. Thirdly and finally, God's working his mission through us despite our overall insufficiency. Our overall insufficiency. Look at verse 16. It says, who you see that? Who is sufficient? Who is sufficient? The end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? And these things is the sharing of this gospel, staying on point when we're discouraged, and continuing to gather out, and encourage one, take the Lord's Supper, encourage one another even when we don't feel like it. Who, who is sufficient? Answer, implied answer is no one, right? Implied answer is no one's sufficient for these things. You're not sufficient, I'm not sufficient. I mean, Paul wasn't sufficient. Titus wasn't sufficient. Silas wasn't sufficient. We're not sufficient for these things. But Apostle Paul, writing autobiographically, says this. 
We're not like so many, verse 17, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, what's it finally say there? We speak in Christ. Who's sufficient? I'll get around to it when I'm sufficient. No, you won't because you won't ever be sufficient until you meet the one that's given you this charter, this charge to share a gospel before you become sufficient, before you are fully like Christ. It is a faith-based operation from the beginning of your Christian life until you meet Jesus. It is a faith-based, opportunity, is a faith-based operation to share the gospel. No one is sufficient. We are all unqualified, but praise be to God, he's delivering his all-sufficient message through insufficient vessels like you and me. Isn't that good? You got a job. The sharing of the gospel. It says in chapter 1, verse 12, the testimony of our conscience is that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, I would say responses, but by the grace of God, the messaging of the grace of God. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 17 states the same word sincerity again. We get the same noun, this time in the genitive. Sincerity. We are to be people of sincerity. It's kind of hard to fake sincerity, isn't it? And people can generally sense insincerity. You know what I love in our church? I love it that people come to our church that are known to have, shall we say, some special needs. Aren't you glad to be a part of a church that has every kind of person, every personality, every gifting? Aren't you glad? Let me tell you something about people with special needs. Most of the time, they are perceptive people. And they may not necessarily throw as many verbs in the conversation as I am, or maybe you are. I'm going to say something about special needs people. They can smell insincerity. Are you a person that's sincerely operational for the gospel? sharing the aroma of Christ with all men. Let us live our lives in such a way and speak in such a way that it's coming from the inside out, this sincerity, this godly sincerity. Let's don't operate for advancement. Let's don't operate for more materials. Let's don't operate like peddlers of God's word. Let's be sharers of God's word, not peddlers of God's word. We're proclaimers. We focus on the message of the word rather than the responses. And every now and then we get small affirmations from the right kind of people that we are sincere. Because we are sincere. Because this is the only gospel. That's what we have in common with Paul and Titus. Sincere, commissioned, speaking, concern for missions, realizing our overall insufficiency, Realizing always that this all happens, look at that phrase there, in the sight of God. That God sees everything. He sees you. You need the realization that God is seeing what's going on here and what's going on tomorrow and what's going on Tuesday. Then, in light of that, live in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of our behavior would be soberly considered if we would just think on that phrase, in the sight of God, in the sight of God, in the sight of God. 
It is true that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But you as a believer don't fall into his wrath. You fall into his grace. And what he has done for you means that you can meditate on that and your life's behavior can be transformed because you're saved, not in order to be saved. I think a lot of behavior by church leaders would be soberly reconsidered, especially response-driven peddlers, if they would realize afresh that what they're doing is in the sight of God, as God is my witness. And 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 really talks about that. I would urge you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. This is not about laser lights and slideshows. This is about the plain spoken truth of the gospel. The commissioning of the men that we are seeking to commission as lay elders in our church does not replace your great commission. It rather frees you and equips you to do your commission in a more healthy manner. I'm reminded of Stephen, the first deacon. Stephen was not an elder that he proclaimed the gospel even in his suffering and in his death. In a world with so many peddlers, we have these men of sincerity to commission. Are you thankful? Can you say, as verse 14 says, thanks be to God? We ought to be thankful to have men commissioned by God, men of sincerity. That does not absolve us of responsibility to the Great Commission. It inflames us and equips us to be faithful church members and to care about world missions rightly. Humility lurks here. Who's sufficient for these things? Friends, it's not about our sufficiency. It's about our sincerity. Sincerity drives obedience. Sufficiency drives excuses. It's not about our, our sufficiency. It's about your sincerity. Sufficiency drives excuses. Sincerity drives obedience. Who of us is sufficient? None of us is. But we're sincere. We're sincere. The message of this gospel, of this cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this gospel is the very, you know how it goes? The very power of God. And trust afresh yourself, not only to the God, but the God who has said these things. He's given us this message. And our days are numbered. We've, we've flittered some away. But God redeems the time. Let's be on our way to joyous, faithful missions. Let's not let our unmet desires and our perception of lack of responses and our own insufficiency stop us from being on mission for God. Amen? As I've said, God's greater. He can, he can do more in, in three years than you can do in 30. If you've missed days, He could do more in three days than, than you can do in three years. In fact, that's the gospel. God did more in three days than the people did in 46 years of rebuilding the temple. Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. He wasn't talking about an edifice of wood, was he? He wasn't talking about an edifice of stone. He was talking about his body. You tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. God is known to do things in his time, but always on time and needing less time than we do. Trust yourself to him and trust your days to him. Don't be defeated by 
this challenge, be encouraged that God sees you and you are commissioned to speak in Christ. In Christ. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Will you hide it under a bushel? No. Let it shine. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be gainfully employed in your harvest field. Thank you that we don't have to be unduly worried with our geography or with responses or with our sufficiency. But Lord, thank you that we can be faithful to you in sharing the message and that you in your time will give the results. Grant us an awakening, we ask it, likened to the first one this country saw, not so much like the second, but like the first, where your people were more focused on the message and less focused on the immediacy of the responses. We ask these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.